Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I hope, like me, you are excited and getting ready for tomorrow's holiday, maybe welcoming relatives from out of town or preparing to go someplace yourself to see family and friends, something we haven't been able to do for such a long time. Uh, But I'm also really glad that uh, you have decided to tune in to our program today. We are going to talk with two authors today, something I'm really excited about. I love books and words and ideas so much, and I can't think of a better way to get the holiday weekend started. So let's start here. The planet is heating up, and it's creating cascading effects that are devastating a lot of people and will likely devastate many more. This is a story that, if you've been listening to the news or noticing the changes in weather patterns, you know all too well. Floods, fires, droughts, storms, they have all grown way more severe and frequent, and they are threatening the life of both those who live near the coasts and those in various places more inland. Disasters like these have devastated the biodiversity of Australia and overwhelmed Michigan's faltering infrastructure. That is, human-caused climate change is heating up the planet and making life more strenuous for a lot of humans, and has ended life itself for many non-human species. Today, there's a growing debate about what we need to give up in order to abate that warming. And it's opened the door to a lot of questions. How much does the responsibility of a warming climate fall on the hands of, for instance, the wealthy and powerful? And how much is it about our own personal responsibility? How much of our own personal comforts matter? in the face of a problem that's much bigger than any one of us. What do we owe others, both in the developed world and in the developing world, who bear the brunt of this warming, but did the least to facilitate it? What kind of material comforts should we be prepared to sacrifice? These are some of the questions that are probed in a new book called After Cooling on Freon global warming, and the terrible cost of comfort. And that is where we begin the conversation today with the author of that book, Eric Dean Wilson. Eric, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, I'm really excited to have you here and have this conversation. So I want to start here with a passage from your book. You write, quote, the closest we've come to the destruction of all life on Earth is not by nuclear holocaust. It's not by bombing. It's not a deliberate explosion, explosion, not an intention at all. The closest we've come to destruction is far more mundane. It's when we want to feel a bit cooler on a hot day. It's when we sprayed our arms so that they wouldn't smell, when we sprayed our hair so that it wouldn't move, when we drove our cars and cranked the air instead of rolling down the windows so that we wouldn't sweat. Talk about that statement. I mean, that's such an apocalyptic view. And again, it gets to the idea of intention and responsibility. Absolutely, Stephen. Um, So two things with that. I mean, first, the, the kind of literal aspect of it is that the reason why those things were so 
destructive um, to our planet is because they involved what the book talks about, which is CFCs, better known as uh, by their brand name Freon, um, a refrigerant that used to be in uh, every air conditioner and in a lot of other things too, including aerosol sprays and things like foam insulation. And um, what uh, really drew me to this project to learn about this, because before uh, writing this book, I didn't know anything about air conditioners. I didn't know how they worked. I didn't know uh, the history of them. But what really drew me to this was that something that could threaten all life on the planet, not just humans, but literally all life, um, could surround us in our everyday lives, entirely surround us, and, and we cannot give, the, give it one thought at all. Um, and I found this quite disturbing. Um, uh, the book traces the history of CFCs and their eventual ban um, and uh, the very slow recovery of the ozone layer. But I think that that passage that you just read also points to something else, which I wrestled with in the book. Um, there's, a, there's an academic uh, who I love a lot named Rob Nixon, who writes about this very well, I think. And he talks about the problem of um, seeing uh, what he calls slow violence. Um, so we're we're trained to see the spectacular. We're trained to see um, the uh, the apocalypse, the end of the world, as coming all at once, like a, a hurricane or a wildfire. Um, and the the grim fact is that these things make for really good TV. They make for really good media. Um, they're they're horrifying. They're spectacular. But what's uh, equally true and also really difficult for us to see is the slow violence, the things that are literally invisible or happen over time, or as you put it, are unintentional. Um, and uh, so this was an attempt to try to kind of um, think through that idea, how can we make tangible, how can we make real the, the, um, the destruction to our planet that is maybe unintentional, that is less difficult to perceive with the senses. Mm-hmm. So in 2017... An environmental nonprofit gathered experts to define the most effective solutions to halt climate change. And I I thought this was surprising. The top solution was refrigerant management. Uh, I I don't think most of us, when we sit around thinking about what's causing the climate change that we're experiencing, would think of that as uh, as anywhere near the top of the list. So I know the focus of your book is on Freon and air conditioning, but why do you think in general we avoid talking about refrigerants and specifically Freon when we talk about climate change? Well, it's a great question. And I think, you know, something that I talk about in the book and something that I just um, experienced, um, because I was just two weeks ago, I was in Glasgow for the COP26 conference. And um you know, that's maybe a different conversation, but um, the, the COP26 is supposed to be a kind of um, chance for world leaders to come together and and uh, decide how to put in place measures that will uh, address global warming. Um, but there's also another aspect of it, which is essentially a trade show, like a giant exhibition call. And I was surprised. I'm obviously very tuned into air conditioning and cooling. Um, and I was looking for it, and the whole time that I was there, I didn't see one reference to sustainable cooling, air conditioning, anything like that. So back to your original question, um, why don't we hear about this or see it? 
Um, I mean, I think on a very surface level, um, and the the editor of Drawdown even said this, it's just not very sexy. Um, and I know that's silly to say, but, you know, things like um, that are that are really important, like uh, educating young women and girls, um, uh, forest man- management and indigenous people's land rights, uh, food sovereignty, eating less meat, all these things kind of feel more like we can, they're more tangible, they have a face to them, they mm-hmm. literally have a face to them. Um, and there are also things that we can really control. Um, refrigerant management is not something that the individual consumer can control. I mean, the individual consumer can decide whether to buy an air conditioner or whether to use it or not, but that's not going to solve anything. So this is something that really has to come from the top, from industries and from political leaders. So I think that I think those two two reasons um, that it's not quite it's not really sexy. Um, it's not very exciting to us. It's not as exciting as Elon Musk's electric car, for instance. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's it's arguably far more important, and I think a lot more difficult to address. Um, we can we're really good at designing new technology that's really shiny, um, that is exciting, that we want to buy because it fits into the system of values that has become our world. But when we think about completely shifting our sense of comfort and sense of how food might be. Um, frozen in order to get from one place to another and that sort of thing, um, it gets a lot trickier because then we have to kind of go at the root of how we're living. Yeah, yeah. So there, there is in your work and in the book specifically this, this idea of um, quantifying our sense of comfort, understanding what the, our collective sense of comfort looks like. And, and it, there's a tie between that and uh, modern capitalism and the sort of cultural recognition of what, what comfort is. I, I would love to have you talk just a little about that. There's something more sort of um, uh, cultural, I guess, going on here than just, uh, I, I want to be cooler in the summer. Absolutely. You know, as I was working on this book, and one of the things that really surprised me was that I began to understand, um, with the help of a lot of the people that I was reading, a lot of researchers that have um, done great work on this, I began to understand that our sense of personal comfort, our sense of comfort as individual and also um, uh, innate, um, like a kind of natural sense uh, in each of us, just thinking about thermal comfort, um, temperature comfort, for instance. There's this sense that a lot of us have of like, oh, well, I grew up in Chicago, for instance, so I can withstand cold, which is a total lie, by the way. And um, uh, that also has a very, there's a, a racist bent to that um, and a real long history of that, which still shows up today. Mm-hmm. Um, things like, oh, people of... Um, uh, you know, who were born in sub-Saharan Africa um, can withstand temperatures because of their race, um, which is also a lie. Um, so there's this sense that our comfort often is innate, is something that's biological. Um, and uh, this really uh, ruled the air conditioning and heating industry for a long time. This was an assumption that a lot of physicians had and a lot of industrial engineers had that there was what they called 
um, the comfort zone, hmm. um, a very fixed zone that uh, the vast majority of people uh, felt uh, comfortable within. Um, and as time progressed and uh, the industry got more sophisticated, this science of the comfort zone, uh, it was called the science, um, became more complicated. And they added more layers to it, things like um, whether wind was present, things like whether you had um, energy from the sun, all this sort of all this, uh, these factors. Um, and what was not talked about was whether there was a cultural expectation um, for comfort that was driving this sense. Um, and what I've found and what researchers are finding now is that this is a huge factor in our sense of comfort. Um, I mean, if you think about it, I always laugh when I hear people say, I cannot imagine a world without air conditioning. And I think, well, then you cannot imagine a world, you cannot imagine the entire history of human civilization before about 1900. Hmm. <laughs> and what's, what they're really saying when they say that, I think, is that they can't imagine the way we live now transported 400 years ago, which would not be possible, right? I mean, the part of the way that we have adapted to live today, our buildings, our clothing, our food, is because of the kind of cooling and energy consumption that we've done. So when you think about not having that, then yes, life becomes very difficult or even impossible or dangerous to live. Um, but it's not that people were totally suffering before 1900. Um, they lived very differently. And so I found real inspiration in understanding that our sense of comfort has changed because it means that we can change it again. Uh, it's not necessarily innate. Um, I mean, one of the things that I just touched on briefly in the book is um, I uh, uh, talked to some of my colleagues, I'm also a teacher, uh, who are uh, specialists in uh, the medieval period. And um, what they like to emphasize over and over again is that the, the medieval period, um, you know, what we often call the Dark Ages, uh, gets a bad rap. Um, the, the assumption is that, you know, people were backward, they were suffering the whole time, things were dirty and dingy. Um, well, that's not true at all, actually. Um, they were quite sophisticated in lots of ways, and yes, there were some things that would... Um, be quite appalling to us now, but there were also some things that were quite modern about um, uh, medieval Europe. And um, what's really fascinating to me is that um, it's difficult to to understand a sense of comfort throughout the ages because it mm -hmm. keeps changing. Um, and I think this is one of the most, like, uh, the biggest parts of the book is understanding that actually our sense of comfort um, can change, which means that we don't have to sacrifice things. I think that often when we um, environmentalists get kind of cornered into thinking like, well, what can you give up or what can I give up or how can we, um, you know, do a solid for somebody else? And I think if you frame it that way, you're always going to lose um, because it's always going to be something that is unattractive uh, and it's painful. Yeah. Um, and I think what I'm trying, what I'm interested in is reframing it to think about, well, is our sense of comfort actually making us more comfortable? If our sense of comfort, of what comforts us in material comforts, is making our planet more dangerous, hotter, and exacerbating income inequality, um, is that really the world that we want to live in? 
And Mm -hmm. what other kinds of comfort can we live in? Like the comfort of knowing that our actions affect everyone else. That actually is quite a radically comfortable idea to me because it means that we're all connected, that none of us are alone. And I think that's really scary to some people, but I also think that it's really empowering to understand that we need each other and we have to understand that in order to go forward in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue this really fascinating conversation with Eric Dean Wilson about the idea of comfort, how we define it, how it impacts our climate and how we might reframe all of those things to do a little better in terms of climate change. You want to join the conversation? Give us a call. Tell us, what are you doing that you think contributes to changing climate? How much do you think we should consider the personal things that contribute to overall emissions versus government policies and corporations? Uh, Do you think about your driving habits, your spending habits, your air conditioning habits in the summer? And consider how much CO2 you might be contributing into the environment. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Right now I'm talking with Eric Dean Wilson. He's the author of a book called After Cooling on Freon, Global Warming, and the Terrible Cost of Comfort. We're talking about comfort. How do we define comfort? How do we define the ways in which we make ourselves comfortable? And how much do we think about the impact that comfort has on the environment. In the book, Eric outlines the incredible impact that Freon refrigerants have on our environment and on the climate change that we're seeing all over, of course, uh, the globe. And right here in Southeast Michigan, of course, uh, we've just had a summer where we have been uh, absolutely reminded over and over of the changing climate and the things that it's going to bring to us uh, in in the sense of flooding and other other devastation. Uh, give us a call and tell us how you're thinking about comfort. Tell me how you behave in the summertime when it's hot. Uh, do you even think about the climate, the environment, when you turn up the air conditioning? All of us do it. I do it in the car, and in the house. Uh, and I have to admit, I don't think a whole lot about the climate impact when I do it, when I crank down that thermostat. Call and tell us how you sort of navigate this issue. How do you think about it? Uh, and whether you think we can actually slow climate change by changing our comfort 
behaviors. Uh, is that one of the personal responsibility dimensions of the things that we need to do? Also give us a call and let us know what you think governments and corporations ought to be contributing to the idea that these things are dangerous. They are dangerous for us. They are dangerous for other species on the planet. Uh, and we are all being reminded again over and over uh, of what we're headed for. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page uh, and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we get to listeners, Eric, uh, I wonder if you can explain your relationship with Sam. Now, he's a guy who goes out buying Freon to destroy it and then sell it to companies as carbon offsets. Talk about why you track him and the people he interacts with so closely. Why is that important to the story that you're telling here? Yeah, absolutely. So Sam is really what kickstarted this whole project. Uh, he was a friend that I'd known from college, and I knew him pretty well, but I didn't really know what he did for a living. And his partner, a uh, close friend of mine, kept saying, you should talk to Sam because his job is incredibly weird, and you should write about it. Um, and I said, okay, sure. And then she kept saying that. And finally, I, she said, you really should talk to him. It's so bizarre. He meets really strange people. So um, we started having conversations, and I realized I should actually write about this. My friend Rebecca is right. Um, and it turned out that he was working for a small um, green energy startup that uh, was realizing that they could make money by finding used Freon, um, finding it throughout the United States, driving to go pick it up, um, and then destroying that Freon through a highly uh, ecologically responsible process. It gets passed through something called an arc plasma furnace and basically turns it into salt water. Um, so these uh, Freon gases, which are no longer made but are still around, actually, um, they're also super global warming gases. They're sometimes thousands of times hotter or better at trapping heat than CO2. There's way less of them. Um, but molecule for molecule, they're really, really bad. Um, so what's interesting is that the United States government um, uh, estimates that we would have run out of the supply of Freon by about the year 2000. They, uh, we stopped making them in about 1997, um, but there was a huge Freon smuggling ring. Uh, at one time, it was larger uh, than the uh, imports, illegal imports of cocaine, um, and uh, this was a, a complete federal debacle. Um, they couldn't really um, uh, couldn't really stop it because it was really hard to stop um, these kind of white collar criminals um, bringing in uh, Freon across the borders. And because of that, there's way more Freon in the United States than there should be, and nobody really knows how much there is. And people have held on to this. Um, I'm not really sure why they've held on to it. Some of it is nostalgia. Some of it is they believe it works better as a refrigerant, which there's a lot of evidence to to show that that's true. Um, and uh, also, it's it's difficult to destroy it um, without passing it through this arc plasma furnace. It can be expensive to do that if you're not licensed, uh, and a dump won't take it um, because it's a, a controlled substance. So some people just hold on to it. So Sam was finding these people 
And the interesting thing to me was that they were often people who were global warming deniers, had very different political views from him, often very um, conservative, um, sometimes Republican, but also, uh, sometimes even so conservative that they didn't trust the government at all. Um, and he was having these conversations with people and in some cases able to talk about global warming in a realistic way. Um, sometimes he wasn't able to change minds. Sometimes he was. And so in a time when we're told that, that the United States has never been more divided politically, um, this was a really interesting story to me. Somebody who was considered himself um, you know, a left-leaning environmentalist who was going and talking to these people who often believed that uh, global warming was a scam. So um, the interesting thing is then talking with Sam, I thought I was initially writing a, um, a piece about the kind of amazing work of this person who was saving the world. And after years of reading about their carbon market and carbon offset credits and cap and trade, I started to become very critical of it and, and went the other way and, um, and talked to Sam about this, that, you know, I don't think cap and trade is a real solution. Hmm. Um, and uh, that was interesting, too. Sam, who was very gracious through the whole project, um, uh, understood where I was coming from, although I think, you know, we had disagreed about it. But I did see that his his real work, or I thought that his real work, the real radical work, was talking to people, having a conversation with people, um, and also listening to people, um, not demonizing them, even though they have very, very different views from you. And I think that that's something, you know, you brought up this question of what can you do on a personal level. I honestly think that's one of the most important things that you can do at a personal level, not consumer activism, not about what you buy, what you don't buy, but literally listening to people who have radically different views from you and talking to them. Maybe I'm a naive, but I do hold um, a lot of hope in that, coming from a family where uh, we hold very, very different views politically. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones if you want to participate in the conversation. I want to start with some social media comments. Uh, a listener on Twitter writes, 71% of emissions are created on the manufacturing side of our supply chains, not the consumer. This means things like the carbon cost of creating a new Tesla is more than what you'd spend buying a used combustion vehicle and driving it until it dies. Governments corporations own this wholly. Big Neil on Twitter says, we individuals can invest in better insulation for our homes, solar panels with battery pack up uh, and zero axis windmills, but that requires some changes to regulations. One thing you can do without government approval is get a whole house fan for cooler indoors uh, during the summer. Uh, let's go to the phones uh, and start today with Allison in Windsor. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Um, yeah, I really like actually what was just said about about having conversations and, and that being a, a really big personal responsibility because that's kind of where uh, my point was in the pers like personal responsibility front. I feel like no matter what I or we collectively do personally, we'll make any sort of difference whatsoever until uh, more responsibility is taken from corporations and, and the government entities. So. Hmm. Yeah. That was all. Yeah, Allison, really appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, Eric, react to what Allison's saying. 
Absolutely, Alison. I mean, I totally agree. And, and going with the comment, the Twitter comment before, I think, which is related. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be very clear that the the uh, I, I mean, I really think the sole responsibility for changing things is on the oil and gas corporations and on the political leaders to hold them responsible. That's where things are going to matter. That's where the responsibility lies. But there's a paradox and something that I really struggled with in the book um, and something that your questions picked up on, Stephen, is that that's not going to happen on its own. Um, You know, two weeks ago when I was in COP, I saw uh, what I would call a dismal failure of the political leaders to act on that. And it's because um, the oil and gas lobby is so strong and To my mind, the only way to really combat that is for enough people from below to push them and hold them responsible, and also to uh, for the people from below to shift our system of values and our economic system. We cannot solve the climate crisis without solving um, the the problems that capitalism creates. I mean, that is just something that I keep coming up against again and again, Um, and people are really scared of that because it seems so... Um, fundamental because it is. But there's just really no way to solve it without that. But the paradox is that that doesn't just happen on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, It has to be pushed by the people from below. And part of the work that we can do, and part of what I hope the book can do just a little bit, is to kind of get us to think about the importance of um, fighting for that world and fighting for... um, a new sense of self, a new sense of comfort, and a new sense of responsibility to others, because it's not just going to happen uh, on its own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Allison, thanks so much for the call and a really uh, uh, provocative insight. Let's go to uh, Hunter in Detroit. Hunter, what's on your mind? Hi there. Uh, a kind of a pet peeve of mine and related to this topic is uh, people who leave their cars idling uh, while they go shopping and then, you know, come just because they can't stand to sit in a hot car for a couple minutes. And I um, wonder how that relates to with the author's work and, and if he has an idea how much energy is wasted and, and warming created by this phenomenon. Yeah. So uh, interesting question, Hunter. Uh, it, it strikes me in particular right now because uh, I have a car that, uh, like many, uh, you can start remotely, and I was talking yesterday yesterday about uh, how convenient that that is now that it's getting cold. Of course, uh, I, my my remote start has not been working, and so I haven't been I haven't been doing it. Uh, but I would be guilty if uh, if I could get that uh, sorted out. Uh, Eric, talk about that again. That that level of our sense of comfort that I can't even walk from the house to the car and sit in the car while, you know, drive the car while it warms up. I need it. I need it to be warm when I get there. Totally. I mean, this is such a, I really appreciate this comment because that's um, a really great example, I think, of how important design is. Um, I hold a lot of hope in design, but also there's a lot of responsibility in design. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting is, is, um, is you know, how much, before you had that car that could start itself before, how much did you feel like you wanted a car that could do that? Maybe you did. Um, but I'm always interested in how, when our design changes, our expectations of comfort change, and then it becomes really hard to get um, to change those habits. So I think one thing in the future, um, 
that is the responsibility of designers and industry leaders is to think about how um, with good design, responsible design, we can actually shift um, consumer habits through those regulations of the product. Um, you know, an interesting thing about, I, I think I always think that cooling is very, very complicated. Um, I, I want to be clear. Sometimes I get um, uh, misheard into thinking that I'm uh, for banning air conditioning, which I'm, I'm not at all. Um, cooling justice is a really important um, uh, value that I hold, and it's very important in a heat wave for people to survive. Um, it's more complicated than that. But one thing that I think is not as complicated is car air conditioning. Um, almost never, unless you live in a place like Phoenix, um, which is always the exception because people really shouldn't live in Phoenix. Um, it's a <laughs> it's dangerous desert. Um, but uh, most car trips, the vast majority of car trips are under 20 minutes or something. Um, I'm forgetting the exact statistic, but it's, it's not that much. Um, and you really don't need um, an air conditioner. The vast majority of uh, car users don't need an air conditioner, even in the hottest summer months, because 15 to 20 minutes in the heat uh, is not um, – it might be a little uncomfortable, but it's not going to hurt. Um, so, again, this is a way in which I think industry leaders, those who are making cars, um, have a responsibility um, to uh, – they need to be regulated um, and to thinking about – how that uh, how design influences consumer behavior and uh, consumer expectations for comfort. Yeah, thanks again, uh, Hunter, for a really, really great question. Um, let's go now to Matt in East English Village. Matt, welcome to the Hi. show. Hey. Um, I've lived in Detroit for two years. I got a little brick house, and all these houses are ovens in the summertime. Um, and I've, I've worked in, um, medical marijuana, so I deal with air conditioning all the time. And, um, honestly, I think one of the best solutions for residential is to not do air conditioning, but to have fan, fan management. You need fans on the shady side of your house, pushing air in, you need fans in your doorways or in your walls, pushing air through the house and then air, more fans on the, on the sunny side of your house pushing air out so that the whole day you've got airflow and it can like it can, when it's 90 degrees it could be 110 degrees in your house you know yeah. it'll yeah. also save you a lot of money over the summer so i encourage That's people right. to please like get into fans it's a great way to cool off yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, great great suggestion matt uh you know yeah. that that kind of inventiveness and and you know it's innovation in some ways but it's also a throwback to the way we used to do things before we had air conditioning, Eric. That's right. Yeah. And fans are such a great solution. You know, I, I had used air conditioning. Um, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, where it's very hot and humid and loved air conditioning, could not imagine a life without it and moved to Brooklyn, uh, which has a very different climate. And strangely, my expectations for um, air conditioning didn't change. And then while I was working on this book, I really challenged myself to stop using it because you really don't need it except for maybe one or two days uh, a year in the summer. And I was shocked by how uh, easily or how radically my uh, my expectations for comfort could change. And um, and the way that they changed was through fans. Um, I think a lot of people, when I when I 
told them that I stopped using air conditioning, just think that everything else stayed the same. Like I just took the air conditioner out and shut the window and suffered in stagnant heat. But um, as the caller points out, like that's that's not a good way to, to do that because your house or apartment could be 20 degrees hotter than it is outside. I have a box fan um, and I, two box fans actually, and make sure that the the air, there's good airflow. And I also have a hand fan, which is nice because it doubles as a particularly expressive accessory. <laughs> um, and uh, I am surprised how efficient that works, actually, because our body's natural cooling systems, which is to say sweat, um, works pretty well if you're able to use it. Now, if you're in an office and you have to wear a suit, um, then it becomes complicated because uh, you're wearing multiple layers of fabrics and you're actually prohibiting your body from cooling itself. Um, so this is, these are the complications of things. But if you're at home, so many of us are working at home these days, um, and you're able to, say, go shirtless or something like that with a fan, it actually works remarkably well. And um, I was surprised by how um, different uh, my expectations were after just a couple of weeks of using them. And as the caller says, it was a lot cheaper. My summer bills went down considerably. Mm-hmm. Okay, Eric Dean Wilson, it was really great to have you here with us to talk about your book and this really important issue. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Stephen. Have a great day. You too. Okay, we are going to take another break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk with journalist and author Mitch Album, whose new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, is number one on the New York Times bestseller list. We'll talk about what it is about next. Stay with us. For more Detroit Today.